Hello and welcome to the BBC Gardener's World magazine podcast, brought to you by the team here at the magazine. Join us as we chat all things gardening with the nation's favourite experts. We've long known that bees and other pollinators are in decline, but did you know how many types of bee there are and the wonderful ways they live their lives? Did you know that some nest in old snail shells or that others knit together tiny hairs from leaves to make a nest that resembles a woolly sock? If you don't, I promise you, you're missing out. Hello, I'm Kate Bradbury and today I'm in conversation with Bridget Strawbridge, bee fanatic and author of the brilliant book Dancing with Bees. A committed wildlife gardener, she lives in Cornwall where she not only gardens for bees, but also writes about bees, conducts talks about bees, and goes on trips to meet new bees. I do this too. And once Bridget and I, along with a couple of other bee enthusiasts, went out to meet the long-horned bee, Usura longicornis, and the snail-shell nesting bee, Osmia bicolor. We had a marvellous day. She's only recently moved to Cornwall, and so I was very keen to catch up with her again to find out what bee she's got in her new garden. So, gosh, we well, we spend a lot of time in it, um, and uh, and it, it's we inherited a piece of ground that hadn't been gardened for years and years and years. So, it's kind of it's up an uphill. Um, I wouldn't say a struggle, but it's there's a lot of work to be done. We brought down lots and lots of cuttings, um, lots of our favourite plants from our last wildlife garden in Shaftesbury, and they're all in holding beds. So. Although it doesn't look the way I, I, I have sort of a, a vision of how it's going to look in a few years' time, the plants are there, they're flowering, and, oh my gosh, the bees are coming, um, bees and other insects and birds uh, as well. So so it's it's slow but sure, and we're getting there. Um, I love it. I love it. I love the fact that... Um, I love the fact that if you plant it, they will come. It happens. They certainly do, don't they? They really do. I know, every time. So, And, of course, we've got a pond. <laughs> good, good. Pleased to hear it. Pleased to hear it. I feel like, I feel like before we sort of get really into, into the, the, the you know, bees proper, we should probably remind our listeners that there's about 270 species of bee in the UK. One of them is a honeybee. There's 24 bumblebees and then the rest are solitary bees. And I know from, from your book, you're really, really passionate about solitary bees. I feel like you know so much about solitary bees. I learn so much from you about solitary bees. Um, so c- can you tell us a bit about the solitary bee life cycle? Bridget? Okay, so yeah, I do. I love solitary bees. And I I, I should say I'm not so great at the identification um, side of things. I don't think anyone. I, <laughs> I, I mean, I've done Stephen Fox. I did a brilliant weekend course with him, and um, was I felt quite good for a while, quite on top of the identification. But it's I've lost it. I've forgotten it. I'm I'm actually more interested in their behaviour, um, especially their nesting behaviour. So, so the basic life cycle. If if you imagine, so with the the social bees, um, honeybees and bumblebees, um, you, you've got a a queen. Um, and many, many female workers and a few males that, that are produced at about the time that they're needed for mating. So with the solitary bee life cycles, there are only 
females and males. So there are no queens. And once they're mated, the females have to construct, um, dig or find their own nests. And and they're kind of divided between the, the bees that live in um, cavities, pre-existing cavities, you know, like uh, bee hotels um, or um, woodworm holes, the tiniest, tiddliest little bees, the little sort of hair veil carpenter bees. Um, so so it, pre-existing cavities in, in old stone walls or whatever. And then the majority of the solitary bees uh, live beneath the ground or they make their nests. They're, they're called, often thought, known as mining bees or ground nesting bees. And But the life cycle's the same, basically, whether the bee digs its nest or uses an existing cavity. Um, it, it provisions a, a little cell uh, with pollen and then lays a single egg in that cell and then it blocks it off. So I, I love that the fact that with the cavity bees, you can have a guess at what species it is by what material you see, um, in, 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 especially in those, uh, the bee hotels that have got a, um, a perspex window that you can actually look inside. So, so you'll have mason bees that, that block off each cell with mud and others with, with resin, some with chewed up leaf mass to give it like pesto. And then you've got the leaf cutters and then you've got the wool carders, which I'll come to. Um, later with their gorgeous, soft, downy hair. So so the cavity bees have to find materials. So it's lump of pollen collected over many, many trips, an egg and then blocked off, and then another lump of pollen, another egg and blocked up all the way to the edge of the cavity. And the solitary bees, the, the adult females are only on the wing for, for between four and six weeks, maybe a little bit longer with some of them. And then Here's the big thing, another big difference between the social and the solitary bees. The solitary bee females then die. They all die off. So, so the, the, the grubs inside um, the, the bee hotel or the, the cavity or beneath the ground, then um, that they've been provided with the pollen they need to eat and develop. So they munch away on the pollen, go through various larval stages, and then they go into pupation. After a couple of weeks, they pupate. And uh, so, so with the say with the mason bees, the red mason bees, they wrap a little cocoon around themselves, and and then they develop inside that over the next few weeks into adult bees. And then this this is something that I found really hard to get my head around when I when I first realised this. They then stay beneath the ground or <laughs> in the bee hotel for another ten or eleven months as. Uh, I guess some it, dormant as adult bees, waiting until the following year when they emerge. That both the females and the males. It's crazy, it's isn't bonkers. it? When you think about it, just I mean, you'd think they'd get claustrophobic just in this tiny cocoon. They'd get bored. Yeah. All of um, the above. I can't. It's amazing. And also, isn't it? the other thing that that I really can't understand is how they actually stay alive with no access to air because mm. they're blocked in, not mm. only in their cocoon, but by the mud or by the wood inside the cavity. So it's it's incredible, I think. And and then, of course, they emerge. And and I love the fact that the, the male eggs are laid at the front or at the top of the cavity. So the males come out first. You get this flurry of male bees waiting for the females. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, the poor old females have to run the gauntlet when they they emerge and they mate and the whole thing starts all over again, so it's very simple. And I, I, I know when I talk to people about it, I 
I kind of liken them to single mums, um, the adult females. So, so yeah. So, and of course, within all of that, so that's the life cycle. And then, and then there's there, there are all those different different nesting materials and beneath the ground, all the different um, ways. It's like the nest architecture of some bees in some parts of the world. It's just phenomenal. Yeah, I've seen. I think I've seen. I've seen little. Um, this, they do like little underground charts, don't they, of the different shapes of the mining bees. They can be sort of like you know one main hole and then lots of different sort of tributaries on from that, or or one long thing with with tiny little rooms going off it. And it, it, the complexity of the different species is is just it's just so I gorgeous. Know, I, I know. just yeah, it's so interesting. Wonderful. So interesting. So there we've got it. We've got our bees. Yeah. So you know. The most interesting bees are probably the solitary bees. Ah, with you on Sorry, that. bumblebees. I know. <laughs> um, some of them nest in snail shells. In fact, <gasps> yeah, we went, we didn't we? Nest. We had a trip. We went We went on a trip to Cern Abbas in Dorset. Yeah, yeah. And we saw the snail shell nesting bee, which is Osmia bicolor which um, is a pesto bee, isn't it? It, 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 so it chews up leaves and makes a sort of pesto and then it but it but it but it has this amazing life cycle where it it finds an old snail shell so a snail shell that's been abandoned by a snail and then it and then it makes a series of of cells in the shell it's getting very complicated to say this and 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 seals each cell with its um leafy pesto and then goes and gets loads of grass and covers I it know. up with a little grassy little he- oh it's just adorable and we spent an afternoon watching them, didn't we? And and, and we also found some longhorn bees. I know, longhorn bees. I think that they're just, I think the male longhorn bees are one of the most beautiful solitary bees. The beautiful bees we have, one of the most beautiful bees in, in um, the UK and Ireland. Um, but yeah, the snail shell bees. So same life cycle as the other solitary bees, but in a snail shell. Gosh. And it, people, are, people are always bowled over when they see... Um, video clips or photographs or pictures of, of what that bee does. That's just one, one of the bees. What's your favourite solitary bee? Have you got one? I would have said, um, and I would still say right up there, um, sort of top, equal, I would have said the Osmia bicolor, the red-tailed mason bee we've just been talking about, because of the the way that as well when she's finished uh laying her eggs and and filling her shell with pesto and little bits of gravel because she flies backwards and forwards about a hundred times with pieces of dried grass to thatch it. But um in recent years I would say my equal favourite is the wool carder. Oh God, Kate, okay, I that's my favourite. Oh, um I I just so I love the wool carder bee for a number of reasons. So first of all, the male. <laughs> the male is, to me, he's like a gladiator bee. He's he's so territorial. And of course, we, we should mention that these bees are absolutely safe um, and not aggressive to human beings. But the wool carder male guards his territory uh, and his territory would be... A, lamb's ear, you know, some of the stachys or um, hedge woundwort if he's uh, sort of out in, in the countryside and hasn't got access to a garden. So he, he I just love the way they zip around. Um, they're, they're really, really distinct and easy to identify because they're the, the only bee we have in this country with a shiny black um, abdomen with 
and it looks as if he's got yellow war paint on the sides, and, and so does she, the female. Um, so very distinct. Behaviour is very distinct. So I like the fact that the male is feisty enough to see off a bumblebee about two, three, four times his size. Um, but the female, oh my gosh. So, so we were talking about cavity bees uh, earlier and the fact that some use mud, some use resin. Um, the female wood, wool carder bee cards, this is why she's called a wool carder. So she cards the soft downy hairs from lamb's ear um, or, or, or from um, the verbascums or just soft downy plants. And then, uh, uh, sorry, just as an aside, I can't believe this. We've got one lamb's ear plant sitting in a pot on our nursery table waiting to go in um, to the ground. And the day before yesterday, I found a female wool carder bee carding. I watched her. So she she uses her front, um, I was going to say paws, but her front legs, and she's got powerful mouth parts to, to carve this little ball of fluff. And you watch the ball of fluff getting bigger and bigger. And then she she holds it in her mouth part in between her, her front legs and she flies off back to her nest, um, which as you and I know is always thought to be in high up places like um, roof tiles, but sometimes people's bee hotels if they're really, really lucky. Ah! Um, and then, then when she gets back um, to her nest, she teases all of the individual hairs apart and then she weaves them into a little, like a little cotton, soft cotton wallet or a cocoon. And then that's what she puts her lump of pollen or her pollen inside. And that's where she lays her egg. So her little... Um, her, her her grubs, you know, when they hatch out uh, and develop, they develop inside this, God, oh, the softest, most beautiful nursery. I think of it as a woolly sock. <laughs> it's this lovely woolly sock. Because I've had, have you had them nesting no, in your bee house? No, I haven't, but I know you have, and I'm so jealous. <laughs> I had them two years running and then they disappeared, but... um and and it was in and it was in my bee hotel with the perspex window, so you could see what was going on, and and just just as she just developed this 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 woolly sock, and it was just so perfectly knitted. It was just the softest, wonderful. It was just so gorgeous. Uh, I just love them. Um, I, I I think, and I was so in love with. I her. think it's very when I do talks. Um, uh, you know, I talk about bee decline and I talk about what to plant and individual life cycles and nesting habits, um, mating habits and things like that. But I always focus, one of the things that I love doing most because I just love watching people's faces is I, I focus on a couple of individual bees and it's the wool carder is one of them. And people are just awestruck when they realise just one of our solitary bees behaves in this way. And uh, I, I defy anyone to know that and not go out and buy lamb's ear and plant it in their garden. Exactly, exactly. I've got lamb's ear. I have got hedge woundwort for them. And I've got um, um, bird's foot trefoil. And I think the, the, the year I had them nest, the, the year that I had the one, so I had the first year she nested really successfully. Um, and I had um, eight cocoons from her. And then the second year, I had one attempt to nest um, or abandon her nest. So she, she just laid two. So I've got two cocoons. And then the third year, nothing, nothing happened. But the, the first year, the, so the year of the really successful nest, 
I had um, bird's foot trefoil all around my garden pond, um, ha- draping over the edges like like big curtains. So the frogs would always hide under the bird's foot trefoil. Oh, so cute! But the um, and talking about the males um, and how territorial they are, that they were pushing each other into the pond. <laughs> they were, they were. I mean, I was rescuing wool carder bees out of my pond um, because the males would just kept fighting with each other and just and just literally pushing each other in fighting over the birds of the truffle it was amazing to see so I wonder if now that the wildlife meadow has sort of evened itself out a little bit um and has actually got quite grassy I need to do something about that this year but um there's there's a bit less birds of wow. truffle and I'm wondering is that why they're not here that's anymore? so interesting because we have um I mean obviously you know our garden really is work in progress but Rob, my my husband, has just built a little, we've got lots of rocks and stones, old bits of stone around the place. Um, And we've got the beginnings of a couple of walls, um, which we hope will, in time, attract more rodents and then sort of bumblebee nests and things. But spilling over the top of the the wall at the moment, we've got a couple of large patches of bird's foot treffle. And it's so... I, I will check it tomorrow for for the wool card as I've been focusing on all the the cat mints and the the, the um, um, sort of plants in in our holding bed. But I have noticed that there are leaf cutters that have uh, also the males male leaf cutters showing exactly that same territorial behaviour around the birdfoot's trefoil. So. It's clearly a very important, well, we know it is, it's a very important plant uh, for many of the solitary bees and long-tailed sort of bumblebees. So so that's really interesting. I will guard mine uh, very carefully and make sure that it it doesn't get eaten up because it does, of course, once everything else starts growing. It doesn't hold its own as much as some of the others. It doesn't hold its own. It doesn't hold its own. Um, And in fact, I I was growing some in a a hanging basket um, for the last two years, which has been really successful. But um, I went away for two days and and, and it died because it just dried out so much. So I literally um, have just planted my hanging basket into the front garden because I'm moving my meadow into my front garden. And... um, so, so that the birds' foot truffle can have a bit of a, a bit of a head start on on the other things that I'm seeding in. Um, Do you know, it's interesting. The other plant that we have um, in the same area that's sort of spilling out over the wall and growing very, very tall because uh, it's got the space at the moment is San Juan. San Juan. Is that how you pronounce it? Um, so, another plant in the pea family, and it, I think that's the plant. Um, again, so all of these long-tongued species uh, would be attracted to that. And that, again, has been... Uh, I, there's an abundance of different species of bee that I see on that plant. And it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Um, it, it's pink and it grows tall and it sprawls. And um, and it has a long flowering season. This is the other thing, I think, with with um, when you're planting with with pollinators, bees and other pollinators in mind, it's really useful to choose plants that have a long flowering season so that, because otherwise, if they just flower for three or four days and then their season is over, that space is wasted. Um, So both the birds, foot, trefoil and the San Juan have got long flowering seasons. So, yeah. I think it's really important for small guns, especially, to just make the most use of the space, to just have the have things flowering as much as possible another another plant that 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 the bees absolutely love um and sometimes i will just sit next to this and just watch all the different species come because i get the green-eyed flower bees (gasps) um 
coming to <laughs> coming to the Vipers oh, Boo oh, Gloss. Oh, oh. So, um, whenever I, so if someone says to me, what is your number one plant for bees? It's Vipers Boo Gloss. You know, there are three or four others that come close, seconds and thirds. Vipers Boo Gloss, the thing about Vipers Boo Gloss, so it's native, and, and we haven't talked about that, but the native wildflowers, really important because they've co-evolved with our native um, bees and, and insects. It's beautiful. Um, it flowers for quite a long time. But the, the, the big thing about Viper's Bugloss, unlike lots of other flowering plants, is if it's flowering, it's producing nectar and pollen. Um, so it's open all hours, whereas there are other plants that maybe just produce pollen or nectar in the morning or the afternoon or the last few days of the flowering period or something like that. And it, it attracts, it's fairly easy access. It attracts an enormous diversity of bees. And actually in Shaftesbury, we had the green-eyed flower bee. Oh yeah, I haven't seen it here, but we have at the moment, um, we have another flower bee. So, so, so flower bees, people, a lot of people listening to this may have heard because of um, programs like Spring Watch and things of the hairy-footed flower bee, which is a spring bee. Um, it's a bee that lives in in walls or the base of walls or, or sort of cob walls and things like that. And it's um, it's very very buzzy. The the flower bees have a high pitched buzz and they're very sort of frantic and frenetic the way they fly around. So. They're gone. They're, they've all finished their life cycle for the year. And what's just lovely is you're sitting in your garden and you suddenly hear what you think is a hairy-footed flower bee, but it's June. <laughs> it's June, so it can't be. And <laughs> it's, it's a summer cousin. So we do have, we have um, the fork-tailed flower bee, um, Furcata, Anthropora furcata, um, in our garden. And that's not a bee that I've had in a garden before. And I know it nests in rotten wood. So I've been searching all of the rotten wood. It's another good thing. You wouldn't think of rotten wood piles for bees, would you? Um, but no. so we have that bee, but, but, uh, we, we don't have, oh, we don't have the green eyed flabby yet. <laughs> yet. You will I don't do. Know. You will do. I don't do. even know if it's in Cornwall. It doesn't turn up very often, but it does. It turns up in my front garden on the Vipers Bee Gloss and it's just so lovely. It's just so lovely to see. I'm very sad this year. I'm very sad this year because Vipers Boo Gloss is, is a biennial. And so um, every other year I get a lot of it. But on the on the alternate year, I don't get much of it. And so um, this year is my not very much Vipers Boo Gloss year. And I'm very oh. sad every time I go out. So into my front garden. But, oh. you know, in time that will change because Vipers Boo Gloss, as you know, self-seeds brilliantly. And after a few years, um, I, I know this from our allotment in Shaftesbury, which we had for... Um, seven or eight years and there was never a year where we didn't have vast amounts of vipers bugloss um, good yeah i'll get there i'll get there i'm yeah and also i can just plant more of course you can. Get impatient but um yeah no it's wonderful it's just i just love sitting sitting next to the vipers bugloss and just watching all the different species come it's just gorgeous. do you ever sit and close your it's eyes and listen for them as well and kind of guess um no, I don't actually. I should do because I, I can well imagine that that just be really satisfying because the different buzzes of the bees, it's like you were saying, when you hear the buzz and you think it's a hairy fluttered flower bee and then you remember it's summer and you know that it's one of the cousins, it's probably for Carter. So yeah, I think that would, yeah, that would be lovely to, to um, that would be lovely to do, sit and, sit and listen next to some I flowers. love doing that. I love trying to guess what it is and then open my eyes and see if I'm right. Um, and sometimes you are. And that's the wonderful thing about, about bees, isn't it? Bridget, 
there's so many of them that you never stop learning. And I'm I'm actually really quite terrible at IDing some of these species. And I know that I could spend the whole of my life learning about the, the bees of, of the UK and Ireland. And I still I still wouldn't be able to tell all the Andrenas from one one or the other. These are the, the spring, the spring mining bees. But there's just always something to look forward to, isn't it? There's always something new to learn and discover. Oh my goodness, I couldn't agree more. And I, I, I'm with you on the ID. I, I went on one of Stephen Falk's amazing weekend ID courses um, a few years back. And, you know, it involved using microscopes and looking at um, sort of deceased bees. Um, and I learned a lot. And I thought, yeah, I can do this. Not with, I, I'm not myself, you know, I'm not a, a scientist. I don't need to, to kill and look at bees underneath microscopes. But I came away all fired up and um, with really, really slightly better ID skills. And you know what, Kate, they've all gone to pot. Um, and it's it's because if you don't keep up with it, and and if you don't, so that's it. If you don't keep up with it, you you lose it. I lost it. And I now find I am more interested in their behaviour than who they are. And there are certain bees, like we were talking about the green-eyed um, flower bee, beautiful zip, zip, zip. Um, I recognise, um, it, it's the male with the green eyes. It's, I recognise him, of course, by his eyes. Um, what does the female have green eyes as well? I think she does. I think she I think does. Maybe she she does, but they're a bit duller. I'm not. They sure. are duller, and it's actually it's the fork-tailed flower bee that we've had in our garden this year who doesn't have green eyes. But I recognise them by their behaviour. I do know who they are. I I know they're Anthropora um, bees, and I don't personally need to take it any further. Uh, and which is is challenging because you'll know yourself very often if if um, if you know a little bit like you and I do about uh, about bees compared to the you know, the people who like Stephen Falk and Ian Beavis and um, everybody else, then people people love to ask you if you can help with identifications. And I always feel totally inadequate because I, I'm not so good from a photograph. Um, but if I could watch the bee, I could, I could, and I, you know, I can get a pretty good idea as to whether I, I would recognise a laziaglossum bee now. Um, well, d- didn't you today? I mean, there was someone on Twitter who, who asked a question and I just thought, I'll just sit this one out for a few hours <laughs> and see if someone else comes up with the answer. <laughs> and it was you. <laughs> well, and the only reason I know is because it's one of the bees I know. Um, it's not a bee I have studied. It's a bee I know. It's a bee, I think it was a laziaglossum calciatum, the, the common furrow bee. Um, and it was a male. I thought you straight away. I think okay, those those antennae are beautiful and long. That probably is a male. I knew from how long and slim it was, and and from the body that it was a male. And then I looked at the yellow legs, and I thought, yeah, I've got loads of photographs on my laptop of this bee in our garden. That's who I think it is. But um, but still, they, they, there's this problem at this time of year, of course, when especially in this sunshine we've had that they start to fade, and the bumblebees yeah. in particular. The common card of bumblebees. Uh, and they, they lose hair and they go bald. I they look know. like these lord men. I know, and I always so want them to be one of the slightly less common card bumblebees. But but I've kind of, having gone through years of thinking, oh, it's a moss card or oh, it's a brown-banded card, I now just put them all down to common guard carders and love them. I, you know, I love them just as much, whatever they are. So, so yeah, but it is, you're right. Back to what you, you you said, 
there's always something new to learn uh, on a daily basis. And uh, I, I love that. I love that, that, that it's never ending. It's a never ending journey, isn't it? This, it's this... a never ending journey. And what, what I love especially is, is you, re- you know, you see a bee in your garden and then you read about its behavior. And then this might not happen for a couple of years, but when you finally see it behaving as you've read about in the books, like when you see your your pesto bee getting leaves and turning them into pesto, or you see the wall carder bee sort of collecting the the, the 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 hairs from the leaves, or leaf cutter bees cutting holes in the leaves, or red mason bees who finally find out where they're getting their mud from. It's like, oh yes, and it all just clicks into place. It does. It, it does. It clicks into place, and you and you and it's kind of exactly that. It's the joy of actually witnessing firsthand what you've read yeah. about or seen on somebody else's videos, like John Walters' videos. Yes, um, you know John Walters. For anyone who's listening, look him up, find him on Twitter, and follow him because his videos are outstanding. His his um, his 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 ability and his camera is great. So, but yeah. And, but then also Kate, there is a lot of bee behavior that you read about that then people like, and again, I'm just referencing Twitter again here, Emily Dorish, Dorish, Emily Dorish, she, she watches uh, mason bees and other cavity nesting bees so closely that, that she has discovered um, and witness behaviour that's not yet been written about, um, and then there's your there's your um, woolcarders who nested in your bee hotel yeah. a couple of years ago when they don't do that. Then yeah, and and when they do, they nest very high up, and mine nested quite low down. Um, I mean, the bees they don't read the books, do they? I mean, Emily Emily posted um, um, of her woolcarder bees sealing up their nests with bits of twig. I know. Did no, you see we that? Don't, we don't know that. Is that's not written anywhere, and it hasn't been witnessed by. I, I suppose when the, I guess when when the, the you know entomologists and PhD students um, do their research projects, they have a fixed amount of time, maybe to to research. You know the, the wool card or the yellow stripe or whatever, and if they don't witness a certain behaviour, it doesn't mean it's not happening. Just just as the other thing I remember. There's an amazing guy called Mark Carlton who runs a, a, yes. a website. You know him. You know Mark Foxleys. Foxleys. And I went to one of his talks about the relationships between um, pollinators and flowering plants about twelve years ago, and he said something that has just stuck in my mind. He said, um, "He said, look, just because a bee has not been recorded and is not on the map as being in your location, it doesn't mean it's not there. Just means, of course, it could mean it's not there, but it could mean it's there, maybe in abundance, and just hasn't been recorded. Um, so, so that that stuck with me. It's it's, and then and then that went on to prove itself, didn't it? Because didn't you have the um, wonderful um, loose yeah, drive yeah. bee nesting in your garden? Yeah, it, which it was, was incredible. That was amazing. But for listeners, a loose drive bee is a very rare solitary bee that does very amazing things that Bridget's now going to tell you all about. Oh, oh so it's, it's <laughs> another of my favourite bees. I, yeah, I have so many favourite bees. And the yellow loose drive bee nests, so this is a solitary um, bee, um, and they nest usually in fairly boggy, watery areas. So it's so very common, I would say, in the fens um, and, and areas like that. 
but and, and they had been recorded in Dorset-ish, but not in the area that I lived in. And Rob was working in a garden and um, there was a one, just one single solitary yellow loose strife plant. And I, I wish I could remember, um, I can't remember the scientific name because this is not the tall um, sort of one that is prolific with tall yellow spires. This is a wild native yellow loose strife. Yeah, Lit- there's, two, there's two yellow loose strives, isn't there? There's... Um... Vulgaris, Lismachia vulgaris, and then Lismachia punctata. So I think it's vulgaris that's the British one. That's the native rather than the tall spire one. So it's got multi-branched, um, um, sort of little pretty little flowers on on multi-branched stems. And there was just this one small clump, and, and I was following a bee around, and I lost the bee, and then I saw something in one of the flowers, so I took a photograph of it, took it home, um, put it on my laptop, enlarged it. I thought, what in the world is that? This, this, all I could see was, it, it looked to me like some kind of a crab um, peeking out, so it's the yellow pincers coming out of, of the flower, and actually what it was, it was a yellow loose-striped bee female, head down into the flower, collecting, I later discovered, oils not pollen and nectar in this case, but floral oils to line her nest to make it waterproof because she likes to nest in boggy, watery areas. And her legs, her back legs were both, I've never seen this with a bee before or since, basically stuck right up in the air um, above her body, both covered in pollen. And this, uh, because then you you see something like that so Rather, this is this is this is the the opposite to what we were talking about earlier. You see something, so you go away and read it up. This was her indicating to passing males that she's not interested. <gasps> Already made like it the, like 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 the leaf cutter bee that that sticks her bum in the air. Yeah, her done. Been mated. Yeah. Leave me alone. Yeah. Not interested. See you later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what this particular bee was doing. So. So I, I mean, that was just incredible. But the the biggest thing is that there weren't many watery areas there until I started to look into it and found that this was in an area, a, a village called Sedge Hill. So historically, of course, if it's called Sedge Hill, it was probably because there were lots of sedges there. Which So I did find some watery areas and that's why she was there. But I recorded her and she was new to the area. Um, and there's just another little aside is that it's very useful, very important if you have the time and the inclination to record your finds, even if they're common, because this helps, um, you know, the, the, the scientists and the the people who can then use this data to build up a picture of what's there and what's not there, because we can't help, um, we, we can't help something if we don't know it's there in the first place. So, but it's one I'm, of the most important things we can do, isn't it? Apart from wildlife gardening and sort of growing all these wonderful flowers for the bees, is actually just taking time to to a learn who the bees are, get to know them, um, which is which is magical and a wonderful experience, as you know we've hopefully been um, describing. <laughs> but it's yeah, it's really important, like you say, if they if they if they don't know what's there, then they're not going to be able to preserve them, and also it just helps track things like species moving north because of climate change, species being subject to to various land use changes, all of these things that are putting our bees and other species under pressure. And do you know, I was just thinking because was it last week or the week before was the um, butterfly conservation's big butterfly count, but there's not something similar. So there's the 
the RSPB's Big Garden Bird Watch and the BTO have have an ongoing sort of recording what's what what you see in your garden. Big butterfly count. There isn't anything similar for bees. So it, it was for a couple of years, wasn't there? The big there was bee the big count, bi- but it, and the, oh yes, there was that, and also there's a bio blitz. Do you know the bio blitz? Yeah, that's for and everything. Bumblebee Conservation Trust. You yeah. can you can you can become a volunteer and do regular transects, but yeah. you do have to commit to once a month being in the same place. So that's so there. This is the West Citizen Scientists um, or Citizen Science. You know, it's so it, it's another another term, a lovely term, isn't it, for volunteer? If you if if you volunteer and if you go further and as well as going to look, uh, if you yeah, just telling someone what you found and there's the wonderful now the resource that is. I spot and I record. And they're amazing, aren't they? You can just take a photo and upload it and someone will tell you what they are. Exactly. So you don't need to know. You don't need to be skilled. You don't need to be someone who already knows how to identify the bumblebees, the solitary bees, or any other insects in your garden. Take a photograph, um, pop it onto, I think that would be the I spot. Um, someone will tell you what it is and then and then you can record it. Um, and lots of Facebook groups as well where you can um upload photographs hoverfly facebook groups and things and yeah i i I think you're right it's one of these things that we forget we know to plant um for bees and and other pollinators um we we know to um sort of not stop using pesticides and but this is the other thing is to record what you see yeah tell someone absolutely tell tell everybody tell everybody oh well recently and still going strong now leaf cutters so so nice. loads and loads and loads red masons this year um just basically filled up every single eight millimeter cardboard tube every single Did one they? could not keep i up didn't with have them. a very good red mason bee that year this year but it was so dry in brighton well you see cornwall we have i mean we have if nothing else we have cornish mizzle even when there's not much rain um it's it's often quite damp here and a little bit cooler than it is as well in the Midlands and on the east and the southern coast. So so maybe better weather. Um, certainly it wasn't, I mean, because in this area, you know, there's not an abundance of the sort of flowers that I would usually have had planted by now, but we're still relatively sort of new. Our garden's still relatively new. But yeah, couldn't keep up with the red masons. And I also, like we were saying earlier, I found, I found the area in our garden where they were collecting their soil to block Aww. off their tubes. So that was fun. It's then, so lovely when you find that oh, little Oh, I loved spot. it. And then we got the um, so that there's two of the mason bees that use that get, collect little bits of leaf and chew them up. And there, so there's the the blue mason and the orange vented mason. And so we had one little bee hotel sitting in the garden right above a wayfaring, a very small um, wayfaring tree that we we bought as a a little um, plant at the side of a road a couple of years ago. We planted that anyway. This particular female. Um, basically, she st- it was great. She just kept going from the bee hotel down to the wayfaring tree, which was literally underneath it, and back to the bee hotel, and then to the flower bed underneath it as well. So I watched oh, her. Gorgeous. That was just fantastic. And to she watch. was and she was using the wayfaring leaves yeah, for her pesto. She was. Oh. I know. And oh, something else interesting. So then the leaf cutters came, and we we I can't remember which is the because some leaf cutters are similar size to red masons and then there's one that's a lot larger but we had the slightly smaller one first and we've just planted in our garden um a mixed native hedge so we've only got a small garden but all the way along one side we've planted about 
I think about 15 different species. So, so they have been in there long enough since I think last Christmas, November. So they've all leafed up a little bit. So what I saw, it's really interesting, is a leaf test. They, they test the leaves. They don't definitely, they don't come into this world knowing which um, plant to collect their leaves from the leaf cutters, except for maybe the rose leaf cutter, rose leaf one. So about five or six of these little shrubs had had two or three nibbles taken out of them, and then they went mad for one or two of them. So they tried the oak and left it, tried another one and left it, and, and I can't even remember which ones they went for. But after those, we also got the larger leaf cutter. They're my favourite leaf cutters because they're so cheeky. So you give them all of these bamboos or, or what we did, I, I, I posted something about this on Twitter. Rob last year hollowed out a lot of um, bramble stems, not, not the wild bramble, but a blackberry, not a bramble, a blackberry stem. Um, so really pithy, woody, a thornless one, that's it, a thornless cultivar. So we, they were, they are always, last year and this year, they're, they're what the, um, sort of the wood carving leaf cutter goes for, but they can't, they can't, they're not satisfied ever with an empty tube. They always have to go and empty somebody else's tube. So they go and they empty out the tube of another leaf cutter um, before they sort of go and put their own stuff in. So yeah, they're still going just about. And and again, we've we've just been lucky here with just a little bit of mizzle, a little bit of drizzle, and our flowers in our garden um, are still producing nectar. They haven't become distressed they haven't pulled back their nectar and we still have an abundance of of insects bees and butterflies oh that's lucky I'm glad, I'm glad they're doing all right in Cornwall in Brighton it's it's just been it's been horrific actually we didn't get a single April shower um it last rained in the beginning of June and we have just had the, the sort of drought has, has sort of broken we've had two days of rain but some some of my flowers some of my plants didn't flower this year like quite a lot so I've had no um I've had no penstemons and I've had no flowers of lamb's ear and things that things that are actually drought tolerant and you would think would just do really well. They just didn't flower. And I, I was just really, just really actually, you know, obviously, you know, as a gardener, you know, who's, who's studied gardening and, and knows how plants can get drought stressed. I've read about drought stress. I didn't realise how like the extent to which some plants just wouldn't really? produce flowers. They would just go dormant, effectively. That's, That's so sad. Um, but did you it's also... Really sad. Have you noticed... I don't know. Um, I So I've been in Dorset this week and, um, and and I've just been out. We were talking about I've just been to a funeral and, and I went to pick... Um, I said to my cousin, look, I'm going to go and pick some wild flowers to put on my aunt's grave, actually. Um, and uh, and we went off and Rob said, oh, I don't know what you're going to find. But this was really interesting because they, I did find certain wild flowers still blooming and doing really, really well. And the ones I found, and this was in Suffolk, where mm. it was even drier and more arid than yeah, it, than it is anywhere rains. else. Yeah. So tansy, full flower, mm -hmm. um, mallow. Um, mm -hmm. in full flower all of the hawk bits flowering interesting and yeah. the um, valerian in the head you know valerian and um what other a couple of other yellow flowers but i also looked in gardens and sedums are, are mm -hmm. managing sedums mm -hmm. seem to be managing they're okay. doing really well yeah russian sage is just going great guns isn't it yeah isn't it 
And I'm thinking, so this got me thinking, I've I've actually started to make a list of, of yeah. these plants that have coped because this is going to happen again and again. Oh, yeah. And, and, it's, and it'll be longer and it'll be worse. Yeah. And we need to know, we need to be... Um, we can't stop it next year or the year after. We can hopefully sort of slow it down in in, in years and decades uh, to come. But what we can do is plant for the future, plant for a more arid um, and drought-filled um, future. So, so I've noted a lot of these plants down. Some of these, the flowering plants, the ones that, uh, and all of those that I mentioned, they're all attractive to to bees and other insects. Um, I also noticed, I, I know Budley is quite a controversial one, you know, it's everywhere, but it also seems to be coping, um, going, going off quickly. And of course, all of these are going off more quickly. Um, and nasturtiums, are nasturtiums, uh, the, the leaves have withered. And yours haven't, ours, ours have been great. But yeah, I think it's a really good thing now, if, if anyone's listening to this and they've got plants still flowering in their garden, make a note of what those plants are and and plant more of them because we're going to need more of them in the future. Um, I've had to say goodbye to my Astrantias, bless them, which I feel so sad about because they they were really good for flies. They're such a good fly plant, Uh, but they just just couldn't cope. So so they've gone. Um, And I'm hoping that I can just, uh, I don't know, the the Pentstemon, you know, the other plants that didn't flower, they're all right in themselves. They're okay. They're, they're in leaf. You know, they're obviously, they're, they're working. They're still growing. So maybe they've just had a year off and they'll, and they'll flower their socks off next year. So I haven't let them go. Um, but the things that have completely shriveled and just doing really badly, there's just no point in keeping I them. I know, because otherwise we become slaves to watering, which we can't be mm. anyway. And there's also, mm. have you seen, there's, I think it could be, is it plant life? There's this brilliant chart, a poster um, of wild flowers, flowering wild plants with their root systems. With yes. You know that that poster show? Yeah. The ones with the longest, the deepest roots, and they're the ones I'm guessing, I'm guessing that things like the tansy and, and the mallow um, and all the, the hawk bits that I've seen have got deep roots. I don't know. Um, but my guess is Yarrow's the other one still still in full flower, and Yarrow, of course, is brilliant for, well, for Yarrow's hoverflies. Well, Yarrow's fantastic. I mean, just in my local park, you know, the park went completely. I mean, the soil was like sand. Um, it was, it was, it was so dry and so yellow, and, and just really quite oppressively dry. Um, but there were these little patches of green all over the park, and I was like, "Come on, I want to go and have a look at these little patches." And it was all the yarrow, the yarrow so leaves. I think actually, the yarrow leaves. So really, you know, I think our future lawns. If we're going to maintain, if we're going to keep lawns in our gardens that just fill them with yarrow you can mow a yarrow it's soft underfoot they've got lovely leaves if you go on holiday and come back it'll be full of flowers which you know the bees will be enjoying um yeah it's a wonder plant we've you know we've all these things that we've castigated as, as, as lawn weeds and, and tried to get rid of for the last sort of 50 years and now coming to to save us i think to save us and our bees the other thing about yarrow is it copes very very well it's one of those verge um, side hedgerow plants that also carries on flowering even when there's a great amount of um, runoff from fertilizer from agricultural fields. It it's the plant that's still flowering. It's it's very forgiving of of pretty much any condition, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, yarrow, amazing. Yeah, wonder plant, a wonder plant. I mean, I suppose that sort of brings me on, Bridget, to, to climate change in general, really, and you know. The hope that that learning all about these bees gives us, married with with the the sadness of, of their declines and 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 what the future holds. I mean, how 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 do you how do you navigate through all of that? 
whoa, it's like, the, how do you get up in the morning and keep going? I know. Um, I, I have I have hope. Um, I, I am an optimist. Um, I'm a realist as well, but but I have just this feeling that that whatever is going on and however dire it appears to be, and it is, to, to, to you know, sort of the, the deep ecology movement. There's there's the concept. The idea is to to feel the pain, feel the 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 sadness, and um, acknowledge the grief, go through it, and the fear and the worries, and then still get out of bed and do something to help anyway, because it ain't over till the fat lady sings. So so I. I, I basically, do you know, the other thing I do is I tend to, maybe I become a little bit um, tunnel visioned, um, a, a little bit narrow I in my vision. I think you have to though. I, that's how I cope. I focus on my little patch, on what I can do. Um, uh, and I do everything I can, like what we were saying earlier, noting what flowers I might be able to grow in the future for a um, a warmer, um, for a warmer country, warmer England, warmer um UK so I do that and it's just the little things I, I can't I can't individually affect policy change and I think it's so important that whilst the the sort of the big um the, the NGOs and and politicians you know people like the wildlife trusts and and what people like the Green Party and Caroline Lucas are are working to change policy at the top you and I can just just be working in our gardens and and on social media, you know, posting photographs of beautiful bees on plants that are easy to grow, um, and telling people what they might grow easily in their gardens that can help a number of different pollinating insects and other creatures, and that that's how I get through it. But but at the same time, without losing hope. Thanks for listening to the BBC Gardeners World magazine podcast. So, if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell others about it and rate us in your podcast provider app. And we'll see you next time.